0: Well, a couple weeks ago, on the first Sunday of Advent, James explained the poem by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, uh, which uh, became a song, and most people attribute that to being a Christmas song, but James explained that it's actually an Advent song because it's uh, speaking about Christ's second coming. It's not talking so much about his first coming, but it's looking forward to his second coming. And been thinking about this a little bit lately and had some interesting conversations about uh, song lyrics and what songs communicate and how important it is uh, to understand what the lyrics of of songs that we're listening to communicate. I don't know about you guys if if you've ever been on one of those websites where you can go and like look up the the meaning to songs especially like 80s songs or many like crazy mysterious songs that like nobody knows because the authors or the Musicians still haven't told people what it means, but I could just spend hours on, that, on those things, like looking up what these songs mean. It's just so fascinating. And whenever I hear about some song and, and, the, and those, those connections, I'm, just, I'm always fascinated. Um, there's another familiar Chris, Christmas song uh, with a great story behind it. You might know the, the song. You might have heard the song, but you, you might not know the story behind it. Uh, it's the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It was actually a poem that was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh, Longfellow lived at the time of the Civil War. He's a very famous American poet, and um, I'll get into in a little bit here kind of what the story is behind that, but brief uh, side note, which has nothing to do with the text for today, but I thought this was totally fascinating. Uh, Longfellow's wife was Uh, Her maiden name was Appleton, Fanny Appleton. Okay, so I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's any connection to Appleton, Wisconsin. And sure enough, there is. Uh, Actually, crazy story um, Amos Lawrence, who founded Lawrence University, was actually married to Sarah Appleton, who is Fanny's third cousin, and he named the town after his wife, Sarah. Another kind of twist to the story is that Fanny's uncle Samuel was this rich guy who lived out in Massachusetts who had all this money, was about to die, and was donating money to all these things. So they told him, hey, we'll name the town after you if you donate some money to the library at the school. So he gave $10,000 to the school, and he thought that the town of Appleton was named after him. It was actually named after Amos's wife. So that's kind of hilarious. Um, Anyways, crazy connection there. Anyways, uh, Longfellow, his son actually was fighting in the war, and he was injured, uh, and he was in a hospital in Washington, D.C., and, and Longfellow went to visit his son as he was recovering in the hospital, and this is a, a summary of what happened uh, and as he went to D.C. This is, uh, Justin Taylor wrote this article on the Gospel Coalition a few years back. Here's his summary. He says, on Christmas Day, 1863, Longfellow, a 57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest of which had been nearly paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, wrote a poem seeking to capture the dynamic and dissonance in his own heart and the world he observed around him. He heard the Christmas bells that December day and the singing of peace on earth. But he observed the world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the truthfulness of this optimistic outlook. The theme of listening recurred throughout the poem, eventually leading to a settledness of confident hope, even in the midst of bleak despair. Now I'm going to read this poem for you. It has three positive verses and then three negative verses, and you'll see how The the theme kind of shifts right in the middle. Longfellow writes, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, Goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Now notice how it shifts here. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth Goodwill to men. The peace paradox, very much related to our passage for this morning. There is this great paradox that Jesus confronts us with. And the question is why did he come? Why did Jesus come to earth? Why was he born, which we celebrate on Christmas? Why did he live 33 years on this earth? What was the purpose of his life and ministry? Why did he die and rise and ascend to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, which we celebrate on Good Friday and Easter? Why do we believe that he is coming back again, which we celebrate at Advent? If someone asked you right now, why did Jesus come? Just that simple question. Why did Jesus come? What would your top three answers be? Give you a second to think about that. You can even write it down if you want to. Why did Jesus come? Well, big emphasis here in chapters 11 and 12 these last few weeks have been, how are we going to respond to Jesus? And are we ready? Are we actively waiting? Are we actively anticipating our master's return? Or are we hypocrites? Do we claim one thing and then live contrary to what we claim to believe? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle in this area, right? We all struggle to actually live out the things that we claim to believe on a day-to-day basis. We are blinded by our sin. We're unable to clearly see the full range of reasons why Jesus came and why it matters. In our passage this morning, Jesus lovingly confronts us in our blindness and in our unbelief. And he reminds us us both of why he came the first time and how we should be prepared for his return. So let's go to our passage for this morning. Let's see what the Lord has to say to us about why Jesus came. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 59. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, Father. Against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother in law against her daughter in law, and daughter in law against her mother in law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the very last penny." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come this morning, as we look to your word, as we are confronted by these challenging words of our Savior, God, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts. God, that you would open our eyes. God, that you would cause us to see clearly. The purpose of Jesus coming, you would cause us to be ready to prepare our hearts to meet him as he comes again. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So we're looking at the peace paradox. Well, what is a paradox? It's two seemingly contradictory things that are simultaneously true. Paul writes about being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, right? This, you have this thing that is, appears to be bad on the one hand, but yet on the other hand, it's positive, right? And we have to hold those two things in tension. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you probably have wrestled with this, how the, the Christian life is just full of so many paradoxical things. On the surface, it's, it's things that don't seem to make sense, but deep down, they make sense, and you know that they're true. We talk a lot about this balance between the already and the not yet, how we live in this in-between time of there are things that are, that are true, but they're not yet true, and there's this paradoxical nature in that. And sometimes the rub is, how are we defining our terms? Are we defining our terms according to the way the world defines them, or are we defining them in the way that God defines them? For example, peace, right? What is peace? You can look to the dictionary definition. First entry says freedom from disturbance or tranquility. Sounds pretty accurate, right? Second one is a state or period in which there is no war or war has ended. Okay, fair enough. But the the biblical definition goes a little deeper than that, right? It goes beyond kind of those surface level things. And it's actually a lot more complex Than that. So, where is the paradox here? Is it not that Jesus' words here about his mission do not seem to square up with what Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah and his kingdom of peace? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, a passage that's very familiar to us at Christmas time. Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And when Jesus was born, didn't the multitude of heavenly hosts praise God and say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased? So Longfellow is wrestling with in his song, where is this peace that I'm hearing about? Well, what on earth is happening here in our passage? Jesus starts off, I came to cast fire on the earth. Verse 49. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And verse 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Let's look at these three things here that Jesus says are a part of his mission. Fire, baptism, and division. Fire in scripture is Kind of a picture of two different things. One is judgment, and the other is purification. See that all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Judgment and purification. Now remember where we are at in Luke's gospel. We are in this big middle section after chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus where it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's been talking about his death. He's been talking about the coming judgment. He's been talking to the disciples about following him and counting the cost and taking up their cross. So this picture here, this forward-looking picture that he's talking about here, it's the fire of judgment. It's the judgment that is coming, and it is the warning to get right with God. Baptism in scripture has a few different things associated with it. One of them is water, which is pretty clear, right? Probably the most obvious one. The other two are fire and the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, Jesus was already baptized with water by John at the beginning of his ministry. So clearly, that's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying, well, I'm going to go get water baptized again, right? He says here that he has a fire to be baptized with. Again, this is that kind of future-looking, that picture of judgment, that picture of fire that's going to come upon him as he goes to the cross, So that is what is in view here. And he says that he is greatly distressed until this baptism is accomplished. That distress or agony that he is presently experiencing and that awaits him in Jerusalem, this is not a picture of worldly peace. This is not a pretty picture. This is a picture of division. And this is a part of the paradoxical nature of who Jesus is and what he came to do. In John 16:33, Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace, right? And on the one hand, we have peace in Jesus. But then what does he say? In this world, you will have tribulation, right? Again, there's that paradox that we wrestle with. But he says, take heart, I have overcome the world, right? He can bring those two things together, peace in him, but tribulation in the world. That can make sense because of who Jesus is and what he has done in the moment you embrace christ by faith you become an enemy of this world and the world system you actually contribute to the division that jesus is talking about here when you become a christian now that might be an unsettling thought for you but take heart because jesus has overcome the world and that, that wrestling, that, that division that you contribute to is a part of his plan. So when you experience the division in your household that Jesus talks about in verses 52 and 53, you don't need to be surprised. Again, this is part of his plan. And this division, it's one of the markers of distinction that we ought to see between those who follow Jesus and those who do not. But this is a very painful reality, isn't, it? isn't it? I know for some of you, this is something that you have experienced very deeply. You have experienced this division in your own household because of your faith in Christ. And Jesus telling us here that it's going to happen, it doesn't make it any easier. What's going on here in verses 52 and 53? Jesus is actually making a direct reference here to Micah chapter 7. Micah prophesied in the Old Testament to Israel and Judah. He prophesied about the judgment of God that was coming upon them. But he also, like most of the prophets, he promised restoration and forgiveness for those who wait upon the Lord. Listen to what Micah tells the people in Micah chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. That is not a pretty picture. But listen to verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. That's the reality of in me you will have peace, but in this world you will have tribulation, right? Right? Micah is saying, if you you wait for the Lord, if you look for the Lord, he will hear you and he will deliver you no matter what happens, no matter who rises up, even if your best friend or your neighbor rises up against you. Your trust needs to be in the Lord. Now, Jesus referenced verse 6, where he talks about father against son, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus makes a very clear reference to that here in verses 52 and 53. 53. But notice that he didn't quote verse seven, right? He doesn't wrap it up with this great promise. But you can bet that the people who heard him say that were aware of what he left out, right? Jesus was pretty good at that. There's times where he would quote something and he would not finish the quote to kind of leave people hanging because they knew what was coming or what was missing, right? It's almost as if he's, he's setting them up and he's forcing them to ask if verse seven is true of them. In light of what we're experiencing, is verse seven true? True. Are we looking to the Lord? Are we waiting for the God of our salvation? Are we trusting that God will hear us? So how should we respond when we hear these words today? Jesus came not to give peace, but division. So if we want to follow Jesus and make him known, we should just seek to be divisive people out in the world, right? I love what R.C. Sproul says about this passage. He says, It is true that Jesus brought to this world and to his people a kind of unity and community that the world has never known. Yet Christ himself was an instrument of division. There is something of a paradox here, for the New Testament tells us to live at peace with all men as far as it is possible. God speaks harshly against the spirit of contentiousness that divides people unnecessarily. And Jesus himself was anything but a contentious person. He was not argumentative. He was patient and kind. Yet he was the most divisive person in human history. History itself is divided by his appearance. For we speak of A.D. and B.C., Verses 52 and 53 describe how families will be divided because of him. He is not advocating a spirit of dissension and disunity, but predicting the inevitable because Christ is a person of passion. Christ does not invite neutrality, and our commitment to him has and will cause strife even within one's own family. The text should not be seen as a license for obnoxious behavior on the part of zealous Christians. We are called to a ministry of reconciliation and the virtue of patience. But it is inevitable that with commitment to Christ, divisions will occur. And division over his person and over where he stands in our lives is the ultimate point of division for the human race. So where does he stand in your life? Is there evidence in your life that your walk with Jesus is costly. Again, this is part of the paradox. We should not be the ones seeking division, but it is the inevitable outcome of following him and forsaking the world and its ways. It will cost us. We should never be fully at peace in this world and in our human relationships. And this is a hard Truth. I get it. All right. Well, that was a good point. I'm ready to transition to our next section. (laughs) Let's look at our next section here, which is the connection between and, and look at what is the connection between this division and accurately predicting the weather. Uh, there's a lot of scholarly debate about why Luke placed this here. Matthew has a similar passage that's not uh, connected here with the, the weather and the division. So scholars like to get into all these. You know, why did, why is this here? Um, William Hendrickson suggests, and I think this makes a lot of sense, that the division that Jesus brings about, the G, the G, division that Jesus brings brings about, is a sign of the times. So as he's getting into this idea of predicting the weather and and what the signs are, the sign is the division. The things that are happening, the division he's causing, they should recognize is a sign of the times. It's something that they should have been able to see, but they missed it. So Jesus points here to two very obvious weather patterns in Israel. The first was the storm clouds rising off the Mediterranean Sea from the west that would inevitably produce a storm. When they saw those clouds come and they knew it was going to storm. It was a pretty predictable weather pattern. The second is the south wind coming up from the desert that would bring a scorching heat. This is not like living in Oshkosh with the Lake Winnebago effect. It's not like looking at the radar and like, oh, there's a big red blob coming from the west, and it's for sure going to hit us and, and pound us. No, you sit there staring at that, Radar, right for like an hour, and it's either gonna slam us and then hit the lake and disperse, or it's gonna split before it gets here, and Fond du Lac's gonna get pounded, and Appleton's gonna get pounded. I've talked to people who have grown up in Oshkosh, and like everybody's like, "Yep, we have no idea. There's no, there's no pattern. It just happens." So, uh, you know, the locals don't even know how to predict the weather. So that's pretty interesting. And I think with all it's interesting because with all of our fancy technology, right, we still can't get it. We still can't predict the weather. But that's not what was going on here. When they saw these things, it was almost a sure sign that these things were going to happen. And that's where Jesus criticism is coming from here. He's saying you're so good at interpreting the appearance the appearance of the earth and the sky, these outward things now notice here the connection with some of the recent passages that we've been looking at where Jesus is going after the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, saying you focus on these external things, right? You're, you're really good at seeing the outside. You're good at seeing these obvious things, but you're missing the internal things. You're missing what's really going on behind the scenes. And that's the gist of what Jesus is saying here. He calls them hypocrites in verse 56 because they've got the external signs down. They can tell people what's going to happen with the weather, but they're missing out the bigger details of what really matters with the coming kingdom. Now, As James mentioned last week when he talked about being prepared for Jesus' return, we're not going to stand up here with some crazy end times charts, right? We're not going to tell you, like, these are the dates and these are the events that are happening that we can know, you know, here's, here's this, you know, Jesus is going to come back on whatever date, but Jesus did say some pretty clear things about the signs that would accompany his return. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 10. And pay attention to some of the parallels with some of the things that we've seen already in the, these past few weeks in chapter 12. Luke 21, beginning in verse 10. Jesus says, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes. And in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how you answer, we saw this, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, But not a hair of your head will perish. Remember he said they can kill the body but they can't kill the soul. By your endurance you will Gain your lives so again the question here as James asked it last week are you ready what are you waiting for are you actively waiting are you actively interpreting the times and these questions actually lead nicely into looking at this last section Jesus tells this many parable of sorts here about someone who is on their way before the magistrates they're being brought with their accuser now we don't know what the issue is here we don't know what they're being accused of but the instructions from jesus here are quite clear he says don't wait until you get to the judge to settle the issue you don't want to face the judge Rather, while you are on your way, while you still have time, settle this issue with your accuser. Because if you face the judge and end up in prison, you will never get out. This is thematically tied very closely to last week's text. The unfaithful servant who was cut in pieces and put with the unfaithful, he has the same fate as the one here who does not settle with the accuser, but ends up with a life sentence in prison. The warnings of judgment here are very strong, and the message is clear. It is to repent, to get right with God, because the day of judgment is coming. Oh, how terrifying for those who reject Jesus and who continue in their rebellion. But oh, how glorious that day will be for those who are in Christ. When we stand before the judge and he looks at us and says, Free! All your debts have been paid by my son. Come and enter into my eternal kingdom of peace. And all the division and the strife and the heartache that we have experienced in this life will all be ended forever. Hallelujah. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. I've probably quoted from Ephesians 2 more than I've quoted from any other chapter in the Bible. It's my favorite chapter. Um, it speaks so much about our own personal reconciliation with God and of our corporate reconciliation to one another. And Paul speaks of, of that corporate reconciliation in the second half of Ephesians 2, starting in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's speaking of Gentiles here being brought in. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, meaning Jews and Gentiles. He has reconciled them. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near this is the true picture of peace Ethnic groups that hated each other to the core who were brought together because of the cross. Going back to the first section, because of what God has done, making those of us who were children of wrath into sons and daughters of God by his grace, saving us because of his mercy and his great love for us, because he has done that for us individually, that can be true corporately as he brings peoples together. Right as he does that work of reconciliation. So we can talk about all, this, all these efforts to, to heal the world, and we can get together, and everybody can sing, and we can talk about all this stuff, but if it's not centered on Christ and his cross, there is no peace in this world. Again, this is why we have to define our terms according to Scripture and not according to what the world wants. Well, I saw some of you uh, following along, mouthing the words to, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and you may have been horrified when I stopped and didn't read the final verse. That was intentional. It's actually printed on the cover of your worship guide if you want to take a look at that. The last verse says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's the answer to the previous verse, right? Where he says, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And if we stop there, it's horrible, right? It's just total and utter despair. But he doesn't stop there. He said the song is true. Even though I look around and our nation is being torn apart, we're killing each other, we're killing our brothers, right? What is going on? But he says the song is true because God is not dead. And God is not sleeping. There is hope. There is hope for peace. And again, it's not going to be peace in the way that the world desires. But here is the key. The incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus both point to this truth. God is not dead. And He is not sleeping. Christ is alive. And He will come to judge. The wrong will fail and the right will prevail and there will be peace on earth completely when Christ returns. That is the good news. That is what we look forward to. And that again is that question that we have been posing. Are we ready? Are we ready? Are we living in such a way that we are anticipating that day? in the midst of whatever is going on in your life, whatever hardships in your life, whatever whatever family strife, whatever you're going through, can you look forward in faith to that day and say, God is not dead. He doesn't sleep. He will right all wrongs and there will be peace. Christ is coming again. Let us pray. Father, may these truths go deep down into our souls. May this not just be something we do one time a year during Advent season, as we think about Christmas, as we talk about Christ's return. May we not just be saying these things to to make ourselves feel better. God, may these realities press down deep into us, and may we live them out God, may the faith that we have in you through our Lord Jesus Christ be something that changes our lives, that changes the way we live, that changes the way we hope, that changes the way we anticipate what is to come. God, thank you that we can rest in the fact that the judgment that we deserve has fallen upon our Savior, that we do not face that prospect of being in prison until every last penny is paid because Christ has paid the price fully with his precious blood. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.